Hello everybody, we're in for a treat today as we are about to watch Andy Boachie's second class from the book of Ephesians on maturity. Later on, I'll come back to review the questions that Andy gives us, but for now, let me hand over to Andy Boachie. Welcome again to my second class on Ephesians, and uh, in this installment, we'll be thinking about Christian maturity. Now, maturity in the faith is something which inevitably we will spend the rest of our lives of discipleship to Christ thinking through. Quite simply, the only time we won't need to think about maturity is when the Lord himself returns. Now, again, there are a few Christian texts which draw us into such profound contemplation on the notion of Christian unity, uh, Christian maturity, that is, um, as Ephesians does. So let me lay out some of the contours for the exegesis of the key texts. And hopefully that will set the stage for us to do some serious reflection on Christian maturity. These days in military conflicts, there are rules of engagement, even in the midst of battle, a basic sense of humanity and civility ought to prevail. Needless to say, it's not always heeded, and there are plenty of examples, uh, even in relatively recent um, history, where uh, those sorts of rules of engagement were completely ignored. But in ancient contexts, uh, these such rules didn't really exist, and such sort of civility and respect for humanity wasn't even expected. Victorious armies would plunder the vanquished armies, taking hostages, making slaves out of them, pillaging cities, robbing temples for their um, artifacts, jewellery, anything expensive. Uh, and the conflict would end with a great procession through the streets where the conquered captives would be uh, paraded through the streets uh, in disgrace whilst the uh, victors showed off uh, with the spoils of war. You could scarcely imagine um, such a spectacle uh, in a modern conflict, although again, some examples, maybe more localised examples, um, might not be so far off. Now, the biblical writers would sometimes portray God as one such victorious leader of an army, uh, in what's sometimes referred to as a divine warrior image. And one such image we find in Psalm 68. And the critical passage in Psalm 68 is actually quoted in Ephesians 4. The psalm reads as follows in Psalm 68, verses 17 to 18. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among the people, even among the rebellious as well, that the Lord God made well there, that's Psalm 68, 17 to 18. In Ephesians 4, we read this uh, in verses 1 through 8. Ephesians 4, the author writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, uh, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive the captives and he gave gifts to the people. There's the quote. Actually, in verse nine, it says, now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, to really plumb the depths of this text would require far more painstaking detail than our time permits, but let me just say the following briefly. The unity that we're called to in Ephesians 4 is described as the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians 4.3, and we nurture that unity with the gifts given to the community by God himself. And at the heart of this passage is the origin of those gifts. Where do the gifts come from? And it's to this end, Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. Now in Psalm 68, the divine warrior is the one who ascends on high. He leads his victorious army up a mountain. That's the image that's trying to be created with the defeated army in tow, and carrying with them the spoils of war. In Ephesians, the victorious divine warrior is Jesus. And Paul employs that um, image uh, of going up on high, of ascending on high, not as um, the victorious ascent of a mountain, but the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So when Paul says, when he ascended on high, he's talking about Jesus's resurrection and ultimately his ascension. And who's the army over which Jesus is believed to be victorious? Well, it's the powers, the forces of evil and darkness, the ones that hold humanity in captivity, in sin and death. We actually read about that in Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 8. In resurrection, Jesus overcomes the forces of death by overwhelming them with the power of life. And the spoils of war are those things which provide and um, uh, provoke and encourage life in the community. And in this particular instance, it's those gifts listed uh, in 411, evangelists, pastors, teachers, uh, prophets, apostles. And the purpose of those gifts is to build up the community. Now, you'll notice that the psalm says that when God received gifts, um, and in um, Paul's citation, he says that Jesus gives gifts. Now, this amendment needn't over-concern us. Um, it most likely reflects the simple logic that you can't give something that you haven't received. And in fact, similar logic is actually seen in chapter 4, verse 9. You, know, you can't um, descend, so you can't ascend unless you first descended. Uh, and indeed, this very same logic is logic we see in Acts 2.33. Um, when Jesus, having received the Holy Spirit, then pours the Holy Spirit out on the people. But these gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, are to equip the community with the spiritual resources necessary for building the community up so that it matures. And what is the index of maturity? The index of maturity is Christ. With maturity in a Christian context is about the pathway to Christ-likeness. I think this is a really important distinction. We don't mature by becoming like leaders, by becoming like our mentors. We don't mature by becoming or aspiring to any people. Real maturity is 
aspiring to Christ-likeness. Now, there are lots of ways we could think about maturity, but I want to think about maturity very much within the context of first century Ephesus. I want you to imagine now that you're sitting in a church in Western Asia Minor. Now, I think Ephesians is an encyclical. It was passed around a number of churches in Western Asia Minor. Let's just say for the sake of, of argument that it's in Ephesus. So we're in first century Ephesus, right? It's, it's 65 AD, and you're sat in a house church in Ephesus. What does maturity mean to you? One of the world's leading scholars on Ephesians is a chap called Clinton Arnold, brilliant professor. Uh, and his great contribution to the study of Ephesians is in his study of uh, magic, divination and sorcery throughout Western Asia Minor. And he draws on a number of uh, inscriptions, cursed tablets, all sorts of things to establish the case. And I draw here from his work. This is all taken from Clinton Arnold's work. Ephesians appears to have been written to a group of churches in Western Asia Minor needing help in developing a Christian perspective on the powers and encouraging uh, them in their ongoing struggles with these pernicious spirit forces. The teaching of the epistle on power, while universally relevant and applicable, proved particularly helpful to converts from a background of strong demonic beliefs and fears. Of all ancient Greco-Roman cities, Ephesus, the third largest in the empire, is by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. As evidence of such renown, famous Ephesian letters in Greek Ephesia Grammata uh, were six magical words or names used in spoken charms or inscribed on amulets and first mentioned as early as the 4th century BC in a Cretan tablet. They were used to ward off demons, curse opponents, invoke success in business or romance and such like. The cult of the Ephesian goddess Artemis was also strongly associated with magic. She was called upon repeatedly in the invocation of magical texts, not only to help her suppliants, but also to effect curses. In fact, one text appeals to her to kill an enemy, and, and it reads, draw out her breath, mistress, from her nostrils. So in that last curse text, um, the, the, the author is writing a, a, a prayer for Artemis to curse someone by killing them, by drawing out the breath from their nostrils. And we have all sorts of examples of this. Even from athletics games, we have a, a curse tablet where one athlete um, puts a curse on his opponent so his legs won't work properly uh, in the race. So set against this backdrop, against the backdrop of um, a people's used to and um, immersed in demonic forces and the idea of magic and powers and sorcery uh, behind um, the uh, dynamics of life. What might maturity mean when you hear grow into the maturity, fullness of which is the, ind uh, the index of the fullness of which is Christ? What might you think? Well, firstly, I think a, a, a hearer of this text would know that this is an uncertain world. I think a former pagan uh, who would have lived in fear of being uh, cursed by the powers or being at the mercy uh, of demonic forces, who's now embraced Jesus, would understand maturity as the confidence to face uncertainty, the confidence to live in an uncertain world. A mature church doesn't have to have everything worked out. Mature Christians don't need perfect answers to every question neatly tied up and presented with a bow. 
The thing that we stake our lives on as believers is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And as that exalt, as exalted Lord, Jesus is king and everything is subject to him. That's what we hold to. Um, but with that in mind, we ought to have the confidence and ergo the maturity to live with the tensions which come from living in a confusing world, which come from dealing with messy and awkward relationships, which come sometimes from having to deal with a messy and awkward church. That is simply life. That's just how we have to get on with life in an uncertain world. But secondly, imagine um, a first century Ephesian uh, listening to that armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, you know, put on the full armor of God. The key challenge in that passage is that we are not fighting against one another. The enemy is not flesh and blood, but rather we're supposed to be fighting evil. And that's why we need all the spiritual armor. A mature community should not turn on one another. A mature community recognizes that evil is the enemy, not one another, even when we disagree on something. It's the plan of evil, the plan of Satan, the plan of the dark forces that lie behind this world, that want to see Christian community disunified and disgruntled. Rather, um, and to recall something I raised in, in, in the last um, video, uh, we ought to take on the strong challenge of Ephesians to constantly speak truth. But remember that that really important context in Ephesians 4.15, we speak the truth in love. Think if disagreements and arguments split communities, as they have throughout Christian history since the beginning, then there's been way too much fighting against each other and not enough loving truth being spoken. And when there's not enough loving truth, you have an immature community. We have to think, how do we bridge these two ideas, love and truth, together in a sensible juxtaposition, in a mature juxtaposition that allows us to deal with, uh, with difficult ideas, difficult truths, and difficult tensions through honest, mature dialogue, which isn't demeaning or patronizing, but, but honest and ultimately encouraging and upbuilding. But the third and final thing I think um, an Ephesian in the first century would think of um, given their background in magic and divination uh, and hearing a, a sermon on maturity is the whole question of fear. First century Ephesians would absolutely have lived in fear of the powers and principalities. That's why they were constantly um, writing out prayers of blessing and curse, uh, trying to appease the gods, going to the local sacrifices. Think of that tricky passage in 1 Timothy 2.15. Um, and of course, that letter was written to Timothy in Ephesus, Right, so this is an Ephesian context again, uh, and it says that women will be saved through childbirth if they continue in faith and love. Now, I'm pretty sure that there is no Christian in any denomination who thinks that a woman can be saved in the sense of saved at the last day just because she's given birth to a child. So what on earth does the author mean? Well, the goddess Artemis, the, the chief deity in Ephesus, amongst other things, was the goddess of childbirth. Now, I can certainly imagine an Ephesian woman having turned her back on Artemis and turned to Jesus, being afraid that Artemis would curse her if when she was having a baby. And so the author is saying that despite you turning away from pagan goddess Artemis and turning to Christ, that you will be preserved through childbirth. Again, 
seems to me to relate to this whole context uh, of divination and sorcery. But a mature community is one that can negotiate and navigate fear. Now, those who uh, have responsibilities of leading and teaching in our communities ought to encourage um, and um, educate uh, and um, galvanize the faith of believers, especially young believers, but not attempt to bomb-proof them. We don't deal with the challenges of faith by trying to hide Christians from those challenges. A mature community brings the challenges which cause fear into the light so that they can be talked about and as Paul urges in Ephesians 6.18, so they can be prayed about. That's how we deal with our fears. Deal with our fears in a mature community by hitting them head on, dialogue and with prayer. So I want you to consider these um, questions as you uh, discuss the question of maturity in your groups. Firstly, how might maturity be understood as the ability to deal with uncertainty? Why is it, do you think, that people crave certainty? What is it about being certain, or at least, as I would see it, the illusion of being certain, that is often so important to people? Secondly, how can maturity protect a community from splits and schisms? How does speaking the truth in love uh, nurture maturity? Thirdly, in what sense might maturity help us negotiate fear? And fourthly, and again, think through this carefully, if you had to list three traits of a mature church, what would they be? If you had to say a mature church must have these three components, what would those components be? Again, I hope this has been helpful. I hope it uh, helps you in your deliberations as you think through the wonderful letter of Ephesians. I hope this has been a blessing to you. Uh, and um, I look forward to hearing feedback from uh, your deliberations through these classes. Thanks, Andy, for that terrific class. Let me go over those questions one more time and then uh, have some discussion about it in your groups. Firstly, how might maturity be understood as the ability to deal with uncertainty? So much uncertainty in life. Secondly, how might maturity protect the community, your local group, from splits and schisms? Thirdly, in what sense might maturity help us negotiate fear? Think about your own fears, what they are right now, or the fears within your group. How can maturity help us with that? And finally, if you had to relate three traits of a mature church, what would they be? And I suppose the corollary is, do you have them in your group? And what might it take to develop them? Hope you found this class helpful. Thanks, Andy, again for the, uh, for the work you've put into this. And I do hope and pray that you uh, find your way to greater maturity and unity, but also fall in love with this amazing book of Ephesians. Take care. God bless.